Hi, this is Ron Gilbert, and you're listening to the Scene World Podcast. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. I'm AJ. You're just right there. How's it going? Hi, everybody. That means that this is the Scene World Podcast. Did you miss us as much as we missed you? In a minute, we will be on here with Steve Salavan. He is one of the developers of the Neo Habitat Project, which is a which is bringing back um, the granddaddy of, of the MMORPG thing. So you will notice a role change here. Yes, this is one of the... AJ is doing all the questions and I'm asking the stupid ones. I'm prepared, knowing <laughs> nothing about the topic. This is one of the few podcasts in which I know what's going on more than Jurg does because this was a uniquely... Most things that happen in the 64 scene or that have happened in the 64 scene are kind of Eurocentric because it was really big in Europe uh, and then we sort of got the hand-me-downs here in the U.S., but Habitat was a thing that happened pretty much um, exclusively in the U.S. And, and Canada, and not many Europeans know anything about it, so it's pretty nifty. It's part of the whole Q-Link thing that I was on for a short time back in the early 90s. Never played Habitat, though. I played the the bastardized version of it, Club Carib, which was... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they, I guess they decided that um, Habitat itself was too um, confusing for people because it was too big. And I've, I've got a map. I downloaded a map of it, and it is, it's massive. It's way bigger than I thought it was. And so they got rid of everything except, like, the beach section, and then they just repackaged that as Club Carib. And that's what I had experience with. Okay. So it's a cool thing. We're going to get your set up on this soon so we can play on it too because... Yeah. He's yep, got yep, Wi-Fi yep. modems. He hasn't used them yet. Yeah. So that's what's happening in a minute. Before that happens, do we have news? Well, yesterday we had the retro mini playing show yes, on our Twitch channel. Yeah, we did. Yeah. In case you missed that, we will link to the recording yeah. in the description. <laughs> um, you may, you and, might want to um, miss it. <laughs> No, it's wonderful. <laughs> I, I love it when things I love it when things don't work quite the way you want them to. And and this was one of those examples of just everything kind of my my my, be, my favorite part of it was was I had to plug my phone in and I got up and my mic stand fell over and it was just it was just a constant oh. On my side however everything worked. Europe um, was very happy with things. I was watching a a slideshow and struggling to see anything in the chat. Oh, it was yeah. Yeah, and I had a problem understanding you because the audio quality was pretty crappy. Yeah. Um. Anyway, on on my side, we can say that we figured out the Mega Drive limited edition from Tactile actually has RGB. It seems, despite I was told earlier that they removed it for cost reduction because on the stream it's in color. And because it's Paul M, which is um, American NTSC broadcast standard with European color information, because um, 
TV was brought by America to um, Brazil, but Philips in the Netherlands brought color. That is why you have this bizarre Paul N's M, like Marta, uh, mm -hmm. Paul M standard that nobody else is using except um, Brazil. And the funny thing is, most LCDs or projectors here in Germany, they support it, but older CRT TVs don't. Right. And um, I'm using a USB crapper from TerraTech, and the support told me, yes, we support R RGB. And it seems that despite I was told it's removed, it isn't. So if you want to learn about the um, the Mega Drive Mini, also called Flashback, and the Tactoid release, compared to an earlier RetroGen Firecore portable, listen or watch that um, stream. Hmm. There we talk all about that. And also we talk a bit about... You, you mainly did about color palettes and em, em, and emulation and stuff from a graphic guy point of view. Well, no, so well, there is some information interesting in there. Yeah, well, no, my, my argument was more that one of, the, one of the charming things about the 64 and about these other machines is that it has a limited palette, a limited resolution. Um, so you turn your 64 on and you've got a, you know, a 320 by 200 screen with 16 colors. If it's you know multicolor, it's one sixty by by two hundred, and that's what the machine is capable of putting out. Um, when you turn on one of these 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 consoles, you get you know a splash screen, and then you get this thing where you can select the games that you want to play, and it's you know twenty four million color you know seven twenty p video, and that right there ruins it because I see that and it's like oh. This machine does not really have those limitations that an original, you know, NES or 64 or whatever would have. And it just kind of, I, I can no longer suspend my disbelief into into pretending that I'm actually using a C64. Hmm. Um, that, or, 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 or that I'm, you know, using a, an, an NES or a, you know, a, a Genesis or a Mega Drive or whatever you want to call it. You know, it, hmm. it, it just kind of, it messes with my with my ability to believe that this is an actual piece of hardware, is suddenly I feel like I'm using an emulator because that's essentially what it is. <laughs> I see. So, All right. So, anyway, yeah. Any news next to that? Well, um, the SidFX has had a recall. Yeah. So there's a problem with the first edition run, I think, and part of the second with the SidFX, and I, I'm not really sure of what mine was part of mine is one of the ones that is affected but i for the life of me i can't figure out it seems to work fine to me works properly so i'm sending it in anyway to get it fixed um if you go to sitfx.dk they should have a thing there it's a it's like a the service is very inexpensive it's something like eight dollars or something it's not not significant um and then you send yours in and they'll fix it and send it back to you if it if it falls into within the, the range and there's they tell you how to find out which if your yours is one of the affected units so that's that's cool that they are continuing to support them you know after the and they're making more of them you can actually buy a brand new one right now if you want to but um, they're also supporting the original run that they made for us mm -hmm. early adopters and also by the same crew is actually ja uh, um, Yum FM mm -hmm. which is 
actually starting a second batch and they recently sent out emails asking certain people to do um um pay um pay for payment it. payment <laughs> in advance yeah. yeah to cover to cover the necessary amount to start even production yes and in case they fail you would get your money returned. but they but they haven't failed they i think they said that they made it so they're doing it yeah yeah so sweet awesomeness should we mention that you will try to put that in or not we uh, we can say that you know one of the things that we want to do moving forward with this is we would like to support a lot of different things in in the magazine in scene world and one of those things would be supporting the yamfm um, from the magazine outfits and it's not something that I know too much about doing, but it would be the sort of thing that if I, I'm not, I'm not a great technical coder as far as cool demo effects and stuff like that. But it seems like something like this, like playing music or getting it, you know, using a piece of hardware like that is more up my alley. So I will attempt, I will see if I can put that in there. I'm not making any guarantees that I will be mm. successful at making it work with the magazine outfit. Mm. But um, a I little story. Why I got the idea to ask AJ about this is actually because Matt Commodore released a driver for it um, that will automatically transform the SID sounds to the Jam FM. Yes. Yeah. So the idea is to, to use that driver so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Right, and just and not even have to have special song, special music, you know, on there for it. We can just use what we've got. Yeah. So that's it's it's definitely an interesting project to undertake. And you know, when I was actively you know coding all the time on the sixty four, things like one of my specialties was 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 interfacing with printers and making them you know printing from things that you weren't supposed to. Um, are adding print functionality to things that didn't necessarily have it. So I think that working with peripherals is something that I'd be better at than, you know, again, making a cool thing fly across the screen or something. Don't ask but me to do a sprite sinus, but I can... <laughs> okay. I can um, print but some here's something, out. here's something I've noticed in, in, in changing in the C64 scene. I mean, the only software I remember that ever had drivers, as we know it nowadays from the Mac or PC or Linux or whatever, was Geos. It came with printer drivers. Mm -hmm. Or VisaWrite, which was, uh, um, which was a writing program that had drivers. And nowadays, a lot of devices that you actually get for this is for new 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 uh, um, tribes and so on they actually have drivers you know mm -hmm. so this concept of drivers device drivers is actually coming over to the c64 well I, I think that I, I think a lot of stuff had drivers it was just not it wasn't called a driver you know we had um, most most word processing software had printer drivers because you know they would use the the built-in a lot of printers would would um emulate the you know basic commodore printers um if they didn't you could generally do like a generic epson 
but other ones had specialty things like the like the Okamate. It was a color printer, uh, so you needed special stuff for it. And there's a lot of software that you know you select your printer before you print and stuff like that. There's other things that require software to use it. They require a driver, but I don't I don't know that it was ever like the like the 1750 RAM expansion. Uh, you plug that into the back of your 64, and nothing. The, the 64 has no idea it's there. The the and software that you use has no idea it's there unless they're programmed for it. They have the driver to use it built into the software. So I, I so think, you think there was always drivers, but yeah, there were, they were drivers, drivers for using this stuff. It just wasn't. They didn't call it a driver. It was just you know it was you know RAM expansion enabled or something. You know it had the code to take advantage of it. Right. But it wasn't necessarily called a driver for it because you know that's driver. It feels modular, kind of like like you would have in geos or something like that. But a lot of this stuff was just you know it's either you have it or you don't. That is my hope that you say will you take the driver for Matt Commodore and just insert it into Scene World and then it will magically work. That's it, idea, it very right? well could it very well could there would yeah. there would be parts of it that would be. Detect whether the thing's plugged in. If it's plugged in, execute this code or, or shunt the code to this to this you know location. Mm. And and if it's not, then you know your regular SID code. Mm. So that that would be you know it, it should be fairly easy to implement. It's just a matter of you know I haven't looked at the code for the magazine outfit in a long time, and it was pretty rough the last time I did. Implementing it in a brand new outfit, <laughs> Oliver, would be far easier, probably, than putting it into what we've got, because there's been... This, this The code we're using now has been around for, what, like 20 years? 18 years. Yeah, 18 years, and it is not anywhere near what it originally was. There's been so many different hands in it, so many different people tweaking it to make it work better. It's kind of a, a mishmash of, you know, oh, this is this this tiny section here is what you know Robin wrote eighteen years ago, and oh, here's a bit that Andrew added, you know, ten years later. Oh, and here's a bit that that someone else added, and here's something that that someone originally wrote, and then somebody tweaked to do this, and the, you know, the other side, and <laughs> so it's 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 a it's a it's an undertaking, right. Um, yeah, other fan. news. Go to that website. We'll link down there, and you can. I'm pointing like Gem, someone can see Gem me. FM? This is like Zentax.com. Yeah, something. exactly. Yeah, that's what what I was going to say. Yeah, we're coming up on our. You, people may notice this is podcast number forty nine. Yeah, and that means that we're coming up on number fifty real soon. Right, which means. We're done. We can go home. It's over. Thank you. Good night. No, it means we actually <laughs> are now allowed to have our own section at the web archive. Oh, yes. Archive.org. That too. That too. I, 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 I am in touch with them since the last four years. And they, they always t told me, um, once you've reached 50 of something, let us know and we will we, we create a special section for Scene World. Don't we have 50 blog posts on there, though? Because every podcast is a blog post and every video is a, is a blog post. 
yeah, we have over 50 videos, but podcast is more likely that people will go there and okay. listen to it. Okay. Um, so I will email them back and say, hey, we reached our 50 podcasts now. Please make out the section. Um, if you wanna, if you wanna learn more about the history of archive and how archive.org was the first YouTube, you can actually watch the interview I did with Stuart Chaffey, because he is one of the guys that was an early supporter of the um, web archive, which mm. is also known as Wayback Machine. Yes. Yeah. Where you can visit old websites that are not around anymore. Um, <laughs> yes, so that means next step in our SeaWorld history. Yeah. Very, I'm very proud um, we did this. And for you people to know is actually the concept for the podcast originally was different. You know, HA had the idea of making just the two of us talking. And I, I was the one saying, no, I want to have a special guest every time on it. So, um, right. Well, my concept um, is really just, hey, I got this cool microphone at a thrift store. Let's do something with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um, <coughs> so so looking, looking, back, looking back to, to the podcast, we had a pretty good run early on. I mean... Considering at the beginning we didn't have much listeners, I mean our second one was all, already Return of Cinema Rare. It's been it's all been downhill since our first six. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I mean, just recently we had uh, big names like Rob Hubbard, Chester Colson, Robert Bernardo, which is a very known uh, U.S. American guy. Uh, or David Fox, who doesn't know David Fox? We should really be talking about this in number 50, not number 49, because hmm. because this is not the 50th anniversary yet, or the 50th uh, episode. Too bad. But, you know, yeah, so... Who cares? So, 50's coming up. Have some cool stuff in plan for that. <laughs> this is really crazy, because the news are mainly about scene world yeah. this time. Yeah. We are just talking about us. Oh yes. Well, well, there is there is a new there is a new Mega Drive. Uh, sorry, there is a new a N um, NAS Mini being released with um, anime games by Nintendo. So oh, okay. Um, and especially Senat Palich was totally jest uh, about it. <laughs> like, why? Well, I don't know in Japan, but I want this. So, um, so let me let me have a look at Amazon Japan. What's actually called? Because Amazon Japan is nice nice enough to have a fully translated English interface. Um, okay, what I've got. Yep, it's called Nintendo. Kuriskumi Famicom Weekly Boy Jumping in 15th Anniversary Edition and <laughs> Ultimate Muscle Fist Dragon Ball. Okay then. Wonderful. And this is, well, the one that has all the animo uh, enemies. Right. Gosh. 
That's the one that has all the enemy stuff in it. Okay. Yep. Um, I've got I got one actually that just popped up on my thing. Okay, sure. Tell me. Yeah, yeah. So this is actually pretty interesting. Um, so the Intellivision is being rebooted. Um, and it's not what you would expect. Normally, if someone were to tell me that, oh, hey, they're going to reboot the Intellivision, my first thought would be, oh, it's going to be another mini, another, you know, um, flashback kind of console where it looks kind of like it and you turn it on and it shows you all these old games that you can play and that's it. That's not what they're doing. So, Intellivision is bringing, is making a new console. They're making new games. They're focusing a lot on the controller. The original Intellivision controller was this thing with, uh, like a keypad up top and a disc on the bottom that was sort of a D-pad. I know, yeah. And that's, they're gonna make the same controller, same sort of thing, except that instead of the buttons and the overlays, uh, it's gonna be a touchscreen. And the disc is still going to be there instead of the D-pad. And it said games that you will not see on it are nothing is violent, no violent games, um, nothing complicated. If you can't explain the game in 10 seconds or if it needs a manual, it's not going to be on the system. And there's, they're not going to be doing any 3D. Okay. So that's kind of interesting how, to see how that'll do. Because that does not sound like... It's not going to be like a super advanced system. It's not going to be a PS4 or an Xbox or anything like that. It's going to be something different and simpler. Mm. They they cite uh, the Wii um, and saying that, that they kind of... Nintendo sort of dropped the ball with the Wii because initially the Wii came out and they targeted everybody. And it did really well. But then after a little bit of time, Nintendo sort of stopped targeting everybody and went back to doing Nintendo things. You know, like, here's more Mario Kart, here's here's another of these games, here's another of that games. But they stopped, you know, they stopped marketing to your mom, essentially. Um, and so, Intellivision wants to focus on everybody. Yeah, but that's system. actually good. It's actually yeah. good. That could be interesting. Um, so far, there's no... There's no specs for the thing out, so we don't know what it's running. I don't know if it's an x86 platform, like the, uh, let's see, the other thing that was, the, the like the new Atari, the VCS. Um, I don't know if it's going to be, you know, if it's going to be custom designed FPGA or what it's going to be doing. Uh, it's supposed to be uh, revealed October 1st, 2018 is when the big wow. reveal happens. They're planning to have at least 10 launch games. Wow, they're not. They don't want. They're not asking for any crowdfunding or pre-orders, so that's uh, cool. That is interesting. It's it's. I don't know what to think of it because the Intellivision was terrible. Um, I know. <laughs> let's let's I know. not let's not mince let's not mince words here. It was not the best game console. I mean, for the time, I guess 1979, it was pretty. It was pretty interesting at the time, and they sold it until 1990, which is way later than I thought. Wow. Um, but 
you know, it, very simple games and nothing blocky pixel graphics and well outclassed, despite the fact that it was 16-bit, um, it was far outclassed by stuff like the 64. Of course. So, you know, so we'll see how that does. We'll keep our, we'll keep our eyes on that. And, and then, yeah. do you have any more news? For me, not not right now. No. Okay, well then, you know we've got um, Steve Sullivan is over there, hanging out in Habitat in World. No, he's not in World. <laughs> in World. In World. Yeah, that's that's what that's the that's the industry term for on the game. Um, so so we should pop over there and talk about Habitat and and you know all the fun cool stuff that happens there. So we're talking today with Steve Sullivan. He is one of the main developers behind Neo Habitat, bringing back the original um, 64 online community that happened back in the 80s. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, now, I had very limited um, interaction with Habitat in, in my youth. I had uh, I was always fascinated because I had, actually, this thing, the... Uh, buyer's guide for the 64 that came with my machine oh my. which had habitat <laughs> on the cover and but it doesn't say anything in there about what it is or or anything so i always just would see this and be like that looks really cool but i have no idea what it is and then that was a, a very common thing with habitat you know i think it was far more popular in legend than it really ever ever became amongst uh, people who actually ever got a chance to play it right and, and when i actually got onto qlink uh much later which is probably I want to say 91 or 92, um, it had been converted into uh, Club Carib, which was not, oh, yeah. which was, you know, like a, like a neutered version of, of Habitat from what I gather. Indeed it was. Uh, you know, what, what was interesting was that um, I'm pretty sure the, the, the quantum uh, company uh, eventually, that eventually became America Online, they just didn't really quite grasp what they were trying to do with Habitat. And Club, Club Carib, in, in most cases, was a, an attempt to kind of you know, focus on the more tropical aspects. Uh, there's a particularly um, popular section of, of, of the world called the beach section. And so they were like, well, let's just kind of lean into that. And, you know, it, it was cool. But uh, the original Habitat was just so much more full-featured, had so many more, uh, you know, cool things you could do in world. Hmm. Yeah, there's a, I mean, it's 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 immersive and kind of enormous in, in scale from what you can do. And uh, it was one of those things where I, I had, you know, played Club Carib when I was actually on the thing, which didn't last very long because I was a kid and I was running up huge eight cents per minute bills. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't very long before the plug got pulled on that. But uh but seeing it come back is one of those things that that um it's just real cool to see. And now unlike Q Link Reloaded, because they've already they've also relaunched Quantum Link just mm -hmm. But they had to figure out, you know, this is how this works, and this is what the... They had to look at it from from the client disks and try to figure out what's it asking for from the server and how is this supposed to function. This was different to do on, on NeoHabitat because the documentation for it kind of existed, correct? Yeah, so we not only had documentation, but we had uh, the full original source, uh, a database dump from the 1980s, and most crucially, we had uh, the, the active participation of the, the the two original creators, Chip Morningstar and Randy Farmer. Now, Randy Farmer in particular uh, was uh, the leader of the project, and so um, he really helped to give us a, a major head start by um, creating not only something that could speak the Habitat protocol, 
but also uh, the, the beginnings of uh, the game server built on a uh, technology they developed post-Habitat called Elko uh, that has been used to power some 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 startups. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Habitat was kind of meant to be a little bit, little bit of a marquee application for such things. Mm. Hmm. And I wonder, was there no problem with copyright or trademark or something? So it's funny you mention that uh, because... Um, the, the way this all started was that Alex Handy of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, I also do a podcast with him called Five Nines of Downtime, just a really interesting uh, person. Um, he reached out to Fujitsu using some of the, the, the legal staff from the museum he ran, and uh, Fujitsu agreed to uh, allow us to, without restriction, uh, to redevelop the entire Habitat project. And uh, what, what's particularly interesting is that Habitat's now being used as... Um, you know, a, a project to help justify, you know, a DMCA exemption for other MMOs like Habitat, where the client software exists, but where the servers have, have been turned down. Um, there have been some interest in redeveloping things like Neverwinter Nights, if you uh, recall that from the early days of America mm -hmm. Online. And uh, the, the way it's looking, you know, the, the, I, I really don't know too much about the trial, but it seems that um, Habitat has provided some very substantive evidence as to what can happen when the legal precedent is there and when the the ambition and the, the talent is there as well. Um, I also wonder, were other people from the adventures involved, like David Fox and Ron Gilbert? Because um, it has pretty much the style of Maniac Mansion and Zack McCracken adventures. Yes, and uh, so uh, what, what's interesting is that uh, there's actually a little bit of Maniac Mansion art in Habitat. Uh, you can become an avatar that is a, a tentacle, which is pretty wild. Uh, there's also a chainsaw that doesn't work, uh, which uh, is one of my personal favorites. Um, Ron Gilbert actually wrote some of the, the disc loader, like Lucasfilm disc loader and bootloader routines, uh, were written by him. Um, you know, uh, David Fox uh, was definitely um, around a development. Uh, I think I've even seen him in World once or twice <laughs> uh, <laughs> since uh, that. And, uh, you know, uh, another thing that's cool is that, um, you know, the, um, the rendering engine from Habitat was uh, very unique and kind of was the precedent for, you know, a lot of things, particularly things like Scum. So Chip Morningstar was the co-creator of Scum with, uh, with Ron Gilbert. And, um, you know, the way that things were rendered on the screen through Habitat was done not through sprites, but through direct, you know, to, to um, you know, to bitmap buffer rendering which was extremely advanced for the time and allowed for you know the creation of you know things like scum because you no longer had to do sprite programming you instead could you know be a little bit more um expressive in how you you specified uh, you know game dynamics and stuff like that yeah i remember being as a as a coder looking at it and, and trying to figure out you know how is this done and you you think to yourself you know oh you know a head is probably you know probably a sprite or but then you look at it, and it's like there's too many things on here than than sprites could account for, especially with the technology of the time. You know, the the way that the the adva how advanced coding was back then. You know, we didn't really know too much about. It, it's not doing raster interrupts and sp sprite multiplexing at the time. So, Indeed. you know, it, it's it's cool to try to look at it and figure out how it's done, and that's that's real cool that it would do that. Now, this this does this uh, predate the Scum engine. It predates the Scum engine by about a year or two, yeah. Okay. Um, it actually, like, it was a contemporary with Labyrinth, um, if you mm -hmm. remember that. And, um, you know, I think what's really interesting is that if you... So we have the original 6502 source. It was actually written in a in a language that Chip developed called Macross, which uh, aimed to combine, you know, the dynamics of, of a 
the two assembler with uh, the macro capacity of say like a like a, a C um, you know a, a C kind of uh, you know macro uh, language and so this allowed for again a very kind of expressive form of 6502 assembly and even like you know for those who understand um, uh, object oriented programming it's perhaps the very first documented example that I know of object oriented 6502 it is just some really wild code. I strongly recommend reading through it because it's it's pretty much the most readable 6502 I've ever seen in my life. And I mean, I'm mostly <laughs> I'm a Golang Java guy. So looking back on 6502 assembly that I can read is just it's revelatory. <laughs> um, but but as I said, AJ, there was no multi, uh, sprite multiplexing, but I think there was because 85, the NES, Nintendo World Cup used it pretty badly. But, <laughs> but well, yeah, but was, but as far as as the um, as far as the state of coding on the sixty four was in eighty six or or, or eighty five when it was being developed or so, um, you didn't you, maybe some demos may have used made uh, made use of some of that, but commercial games it was pretty pretty rare. Absolutely, sixty four anyway, especially in that time. And, you know, really, I, I think one of the, the fundamental things to kind of note is that, you know, Lucasfilm was really a pioneer of some rather unorthodox microcomputer development techniques. Uh, in those days, uh, they did all of their development on, on Unix, typically on Sun workstations. And then uh, what they do to actually develop it on the 64 is that they had this device that would just plug into the cartridge port. And since you got the full bus, you know, of, of the 64 on that thing, it would just like, you know, basically shove all the bits in the memory just like that. And so, you know, you could do all your development in a, you know, what, what we consider to be a much more modern environment, but be able to instantaneously test your code on a 64 from there. So what was the, well, let, let's go into, into your history here. How did you get started with this? Because you don't, you don't seem that old to have been, you know, <laughs> working on this when it, when it came out. And, and, and you said earlier that you didn't get to experience this when it was actually happening. So that's great. So too young um, for a retro. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So so actually, uh, so my dad had a Commodore 64 and was a user of Quantum Link. And I remember, you know, reading in some of the magazines about this thing called Club Carib. And that always stuck in the back of my mind because it looked just so incredibly ahead of its time, you know, for 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 the 1980s. And so, you know, I did some Googling. This must have been back in the early 2000s and discovered something called uh, Worlds Away um, and V-Zones. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately joined those communities, made some some really good friends there. And, you know, more or less, I'd always kind of had the, this fantasy in the back of my mind of, you know, being able to, to, to check check out Habitat once again. It just seemed like it was it was lost to the winds. And uh, so, you know, for... For me, like, you know, I've I, I worked in technology for over 10 years, worked for companies like Twitter and Tumblr, uh, Google and Red Hat. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of development in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I was just sitting in my, my apartment uh, out, out here in New York, um, you know, a couple years back. This must have been back in 2014. I was browsing through the Reddit forums, uh, you know, Reddit slash r slash C64, as one does on a su Sunday afternoon. Yes. And <laughs> they, they were like, you know, we're, we're trying to recreate Habitat. And I was like, oh, my God. I need to get in this like post haste. So I hopped in their IRC room within the space of like three or four minutes. I was talking to Randy Farmer, like one of my childhood heroes. And he, you know, we were talking the same language and it was like, this is magical. Like, you know, I never really get, <laughs> you know, you always get, get a chance to like read about legends, but you know, it, it, it's, it's always been kind of like a fancy of mine to have an opportunity to like, you know, to work with one. And you know, what was cool is that during that hackathon, what uh, we worked on was to, uh, you know, basically take the source code of Q-Link Reloaded and then uh, modify it in such a way that we could make it a, an intelligent proxy between the Q-Link protocol 
and uh, the Habitat server because we needed another another server, which Randy ultimately developed to go and translate uh, what was coming out of QLink to something that um, you know uh, the Elko server, which spoke entirely in JSON-based RPCs, could understand. Um, and so we, we were able to work on that part. We got it together, and by the end of that hackathon, we got the, the first you know the first screen of Habitat to load. It was a an avatar with no head st- standing in a room with a sign, and it was magical. We were like, wow, this is a crazy experience for a full day. Um, the, the trouble was at the end of that day, um, we uh, that we had the source code for for a Stratus, and through the unbelievably awesome efforts of Alex Handy. Uh, they were able to go and uh, acquire one of these, <laughs> and it was working, and they even got it running, and they got the, the code loaded onto it, and they discovered that because this, this code was developed very much in tandem with the original Quantum Link source from, from America Online, uh, there were several headers and libraries that were missing. And so at the end of the day, you know, we came within spitting distance of having the whole situation working, but you know, we would need code from America Online to complete that experience. And so... You know that ended up taking a, quite a bit of time. Uh, we we reached out to um, you know America Online and they said you know they they'd be interested in working with us, but they they dragged their feet quite a bit. Um, and you know you know I suppose like they had bigger things, b- bigger things to worry about be, being you know sold to Oath and what have you. Uh, <laughs> speaking as a speaking as a former two week Yahoo employee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In, in any case, like uh, what what happened was that uh, uh, back in a. Uh, 2016 or whereabouts, uh, Randy said that he was uh, just going to rewrite the, 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 the server from scratch and was looking for some folks to join in the project. And, you know, I just uh, uh, quit my job at Twitter at that time uh, to start my own company, and I had about a month of gap time. And I was like, man, I, I need to get, get into something that's just like a purely fun hack. And, oh, my God, this ever proved to be that. It was, hands down, one of the most enjoyable like development projects I have ever been involved in in my life. Just absolute an absolute joy to, to hack on Not, nothing quite like debugging with a commodore 64 i tell you what that's just so much fun <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really interesting how you mentioned that aol was actually willing to help out though they were a little preoccupied with stuff because i was always under the impression at least when it came to the aol stuff or the i'm sorry the q-link stuff that when they had gotten rid of that and transitioned over they just sort of tossed that out and they wouldn't have even had anything left over from so what was interesting was that a lot of the the protocol, like particularly the Q-Link protocol and the the servers that they that they ran, ultimately became the backbone of America Online 1.0. And that was one of the major reasons they had to shut down Quantum Link because they just didn't have <laughs> they didn't have mm-hmm. enough computers to keep the thing running. And so, you know, it, it seemed to me, and you know, don't 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 quote me on this. I mean, we're on a podcast, so I suppose it, that's just kind of inherent. But you know. Well, one way or another, like I think some of that might, might have even been ticking in, in their their infrastructure well well into the '90s and the oh. 2000s, um, and so uh, it, it was it was kind of fascinating. Like you know, all, all the folks at, at America Online seemed very interested in the project, but you know, I think that they were just a little bit a little bit too busy to really become actively involved. And, and and as a result of the fact that you know you guys have the documentation and and you've been able to to kind of even put more time into it. Um, Q-Link Reloaded or Rebooted or whatever it's called now uh, is sort of a it, – it's kind of a snapshot of what it looked like, but half of it doesn't really work. I don't know if you've been on it at all. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, but, we actually run a QLR server um, in front of Habitat. Oh, okay. Uh, so um, what, what's interesting about QLR is that um, there, there's a whole lot of you – know, so, so the, the, the most important thing to really – 
you know, uh, take care of when you're working with Quantum Link is that that really unique kind of over the wire protocol that they developed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because more or less back in you know the 80s, uh, they used what were called um, uh, time sharing networks uh, or packet sharing networks, which were effectively like really, really, really long serial cables to a mainframe. And so, uh, you know, the Quantum Link protocol was designed to kind of encapsulate, you know, chunks of communication between a Commodore and uh, their their Stratus mainframes into a, a text-based protocol that could go over these, like, serial lines. And, uh, you know, uh, hab- the Habitat protocol was encapsulated within that as well. And so the really, like, the fundamental issue that we ran into was that, you know, we needed to figure out a way to, you know, get a Commodore to get all the way out to, to our services so we could start to, you know, iteratively develop the that um, in, in that in that way, and so uh, that was really the the first major challenge. Uh, and you know, I, I think QLR, you know, is it, just a you know, it's it's a pretty amazing code base from 2004. Like you know, it's it's very Java one four, <laughs> but at the same time, like the amounts of detail and the amount of research that went into it, and just kind of like the quality of the code by by 2004 standards is astounding. Uh, Jim Brain is is hands down like an absolute mad genius. That guy uh, was the main person behind the project initially, and he just like through sheer force of will, was able to figure all of this stuff out from documentation and hacking around on this client disks. It is astounding what they accomplished there. Right, right. But yeah. still, a lot Jim of it Brain is... Jim has a name. <laughs> yeah, still a lot of it is Sorry. sort of placeholder, you know, this is not available at this point. Whereas you guys, NeoHabitat, from what I've been able to see, is almost almost complete in, in how it's been rebuilt. Like, everything is there. Yes, yeah, indeed. Uh, so that, that, that was one of our, our project goals, to basically... You know, go and present the the kind of experience, if not even a better experience, than someone would have had in '87. Um, and the the benefit of building it on on modern technology is the fact that we can support far more folks in world. And uh, you know, I remember like on our on our uh, inaugural day, we had 150 people simultaneously on, which I think r- rivaled any any um, experience anybody would have had back in the '80s. And uh, you know, realistically, like, you know, we've been able to do some really cool things. Like, in particular, Stu, who um, will hopefully be coming in World sometime soon, uh, was able to, uh, working with another person named Nate, uh, to recover an original 1987 database dump of the entire Habitat world and restore everything to its original state. So there are, like, over 3,000 regions that you can go and explore. It is just, it's really easy to get lost in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I said, the experience is nowadays better than what you had uh, back then in the 80s. How much, how much users could you have simultaneously, maximum? So that was actually one of the biggest technical hurdles they ran into in the 80s. Um, I think it was very difficult to have more than about 300 uh, before, like all of the Q-Link computing capacity generally got eaten up. Um, you know, Habitat was a lot more uh, resource intensive just by nature of the way that the game worked than Q-Link itself, which was, you know, really, it, when it all came down to it, kind of like a, a really spicy terminal and bulletin board that had like some, you know, so, some cool things. Like the, I really recommend checking out the Q-Link protocol because it, it'll remind you a little bit of something like JavaScript. You know, it's designed to kind of, you know, send client commands to the Commodore to do things on your screen, and then the Commodore is kind of like sending RPCs back to the server to tell it, you know, responses or to initiate other sorts of uh, things. And so that that was a lot simpler than Habitat. Habitat was just like always talking back and forth, all sorts of bits of information and lots of processing. And those were all like 68,000-based machines, these Stratus uh, Voss servers. And so (laughs) those hamsters were going nuts out there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, is, now going into the future with this, um, there are some 
there are some part, parts in it where you see, um, you know, you know, it's an empty building and it's not quite quite back to where it was. And there's usually a message there saying, you know, if, you know, we're trying to to rebuild this all. If you can help, then then, you know, by all means. But um, what's the the plan to really kind of get everything? You know, like like what are those areas and what are they missing and and what needs to be done to really pull it back into what it was? Well, you know, I, I would say so. You know, out of what remains to be done, um, you know, and th- things have changed pretty dramatically over the past like six or seven months, especially with the work that Stu and Nate have been doing. Mm-hmm. So initially, like we we had uh, like you know under construction zones uh, because we hadn't finished uh, the conversion of those parts of the world. But I think almost the entirety, I'd say pretty much 99% of the original 87 launch world is intact and in the the, the shape that it was originally. Um, Another thing that's notable is that there are uh, over 100 different object classes that are in world, and all of those are fully implemented, um, you know, line for line from the original PL1 source. Um, You know, honestly, I think like the, the biggest challenge that we're facing with Habitat right now is in uh, attracting people to come check it out because, um, you know, in, in particular, like, you know, c- compared to other sorts of, um, you know, online MMOs, uh, th- this one requires, you know, th- to some degree, a, a little bit, a little bit more, um, a l- little bit more, you know, fiddle. <laughs> right. You know, you need to l- load up like an emulator. And, you know, we have packages for that, but, you know, it's a little bit more involved than going to a web page. And, um, you know, I, I think that results in a lot of people kind of coming in in sort of a diffuse way. And when people actually meet each other in world, it's magical. People are like, whoa, this is working on a Commodore? This is crazy. <laughs> and, you know, we ha- even have, like, some folks, like, like a fellow named Flexman who has a Commodore 128 that he uses to log in pretty much every day. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's mostly just kind of, a, 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 I think, a community and publicity building thing right now because, you know, the world is there. It's just kind of a matter of getting people in it and, and showing them, like, what they can do. You know, we have all sorts of different ways avatars can interact. Particularly, uh, we have, like, a, uh, uh, like weapons in the game. We have a full, like, economy-based system, you know, ways to uh, customize your avatar. You know, you, you, everybody has their own personal turf. It's just, like, you know, I, I personally have met, like, a lot of really interesting people through Habitat who just kind of show up. And, yeah, you know, one of the things we tried to do to kind of stave off the kind of walking through like a dead mall kind of environment <laughs> is to uh, implement some n- not only like a bot framework, but also some bots to kind of help uh, help it to feel a little bit less um, a little bit less barren. And uh, whenever anybody logs in, it'll also drop a message into our Slack, to let people know, hey, people are in the world. You should come check us out. You know, cool. come say hello. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and now there are, aside from using it on an actual 64, there are downloads, which is, from what I can gather, it's the it's the software bundled with a version of Vice? That's correct. Uh, so it, it's bundled with a version of Vice, and it also, uh, that version of Vice is configured to speak to the servers that we maintain for new Habitat. Uh, so, you know, particularly, uh, I developed the one for, for, for Mac OS, and it's, it's just as simple as dragging it to applications and double-clicking, and you're, you're pretty much in world at that point. Hmm. Okay, yeah, because I, I tried that out. Mine, it doesn't work on mine because I have Vice on mine already, and I think that my version of Vice tries to take over the settings of that one. <laughs> yeah, they, they all get stored in, in roughly the same place, uh, yeah. especially on a Mac. And, you know, the, the challenge is, like, at least on, on Mac, some of the newer versions of Vice don't work as well as older versions because of the way that the serial protocol kind of works. Um, right. Altogether, though, we're, we're all very um, very impressed at just how successful Vice has been at <laughs> re- simulating the 
you know, the, the Commodore 64 quirks and, and features uh, in, a, in a way that would allow Habitat to work at all. But I guess by now, Vice is pretty much accurate, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. Remember, I remember, like, um, 12 years ago, it was still a bit sloppy on the MTSC emulation side. And people were saying, like, Vice is great, but only use it for PAL, never for MTSC. <laughs> yeah. Actually, what's interesting is that uh, Habitat pretty much needs to work in NTSC. I mean, it, it works fine in PAL, but it's a little bit slower because of the 50 versus 60 hertz, uh, you know, conversion. And so if you end up switching your device into NTSC mode um, and, uh, you know, using Habitat, you'll get pretty much a, like if you've ever seen any of the videos on YouTube, you'll, you'll get like a point for point kind of recreation of something like that. Right. Mm. If I use it on my VZ64, I will make sure to use my NTSC one. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah. yeah. Definitely like NTSC for, for, for sure um, if you want to get that experience. But PAL, PAL definitely should, should work fine too. Yeah. Mm. I um, I wonder. So, so you said it's a bit more difficult for uh, new users to get into it. So, what kind of promotions are you doing next to talking on podcasts? Are you <laughs> having plans to get this out of the world <laughs> in a way? I don't know. I, I, I don't, no one really listens to us, so you know, I, I don't know how much <laughs> no, help I we're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I mean. I just mean it sounded like you were you were planning on a promotion tour or something. But but maybe maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Just wonder. Well, that that's certainly something that that is uh, still kind of very much up in the air. Um, you know, we we have gotten some press. Uh, Wired did a, a write up on us. Uh, Vice Motherboard did a write up on us. But that was sort of back in the days of development. Um, and when we released uh, on our beta release back in. Back in June, um, we ended up uh, we ended up uh, reaching out to uh, Hacker News. We put uh, something up on Hacker News, and uh, that ended up getting us some some folks. But you know, I, I think the the challenge right now is kind of finding the right publicity and getting you know the the word out to people who might be interested in in playing this because you know. Those people kind of trickle in, you know, through some of the the disparate press that that Habitat has received. But it'd be really cool to kind of, you know, get some sort of like, you know, convocation. You know, we, I like to call it the habiting. You know, we want to have a habiting inside inside Habitat and see if we can't uh, attract like some people who really, you know, in, in, in enjoy uh, retro computing and want to kind of see, you know, sort of like the progenitor of all modern uh, graphical MMOs. So. Uh, if you all have any ideas, feel free to to give me a ring. Just just hop on the new Habs Slack, and you know we uh, we'd love to talk with anybody who who might be interested in, in helping us with that. I think now talking to you, we definitely should get um, Randy uh, Randy Farmer also on it when he's when he's not sick anymore. Absolutely, Ran Randy is is uh, one of the best podcasters that I know. That that fella has <laughs> has such a great radio voice. I tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you are the guy with the radio voice, aren't you? Oh, uh, yeah. I used to host a show um, back um, on a, a station called WKNC. Uh, I was the local music director, helped to bring some bands like uh, okay. Future Islands and, and uh, Bon Iver helped, helped to kind of, you know, well, Bon Iver was very much their own thing, but I helped, helped to kind of promote them in their, their early stages of their careers. So do you think at some point you will be 100% complete? As I said, you aren't finished yet and you're still working on getting the final quirks to run the rooms that are not finished yet and so on. Well, the, the, the way we see it, we're, we're pretty much, you know, we, 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 we are at what you might call general availability. Um, so okay. 
right now, I think we're we're comfortable at calling it just about a hundred percent. You know, there might be some work on the periphery, but you know, I, I would say that you know, in in general, like anyone joining Habitat right now will be getting, you know, a, an extremely accurate representation of, of of what the experience was like. And it's really up to the the users, you know, to create their their content. It's sort of you've given this this empty slate. You know, this is the world. Now do your thing. Sort of like how how Second Life tried to do it with, you know, have your in-game currency and, and economy, and it's up to the users to create and, and have something. You know, I, I've, I've explained, I've, I've described it to Jorg as kind of like, it's Second Life, but faster. <laughs> <laughs> but and without, with, without Linden dollars. Yeah, right, right. But, oh, yeah. but, you know, it's really up to the users to come in and start doing stuff and populating these areas. And that's one of the things that I've seen a lot is that a couple of times I've seen somebody in world with me. Uh, usually from the times that I've been on, I'm generally alone, but you can always tell that someone's been there because things have been moved around or, oh, yeah. or doors that I opened and forgot about have been closed again. So someone's been through there fixing things that I've moved. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that's kind of the, the, the real appeal of, of Habitat. Like, when it starts to get a real, like, lived-in feel, uh, particularly, like, back in the 80s, people would just drop pieces of paper around everywhere. Mm-hmm. I know, uh, with, with my personal Phil Collins affliction, I did that, like, all over. And there was this one <laughs> memorable moment when a, a screencaster was coming through, and he's like, I don't get the whole Phil Collins thing. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, you're, you're so right. Like, you know, Second Life really wouldn't have become a thing if it wasn't for the, the vast influx of, of people who, who joined and, you know, added interesting content and, and built built things that were worthwhile. And realistically, like, you know, an MMO, uh, and this was something that, that Chip and, and Randy and the team at Lucasfilm discovered even back in the 80s, um, and you'll read about it in, in uh, the, the, the white paper uh, that they wrote about the experience here. An MMO is, you know, really just kind of like a, a really elaborate container for people to to kind of make what they they will out of it and i think that's the real potential of something like this you know particularly for you know for people to come and you know discover other interesting like-minded people i mean that was certainly the the major reason why i started the project period because i know i've been working in social media for a while and i kind of wanted to see if we could build like a place that you know kind of enabled you know people to talk to one another in a, a chill fashion you know a way that would be conducive towards making friendships as opposed to kind of, you know, going, going for the jugular like you might find on something like Facebook. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, m- m- much to, my, to my, my own delight, you know, I very much found that to be the case. All the people I've met through Habitat have, have not only, like, really enjoyed the experience, but on top of that, you know, a lot of them, even when we have differing opinions, you know, there's just kind of something about the awkwardness of that, that Commodore 64 user interface that just really... You know, it, it's really hard to troll. I mean, you got to be a real dedicated troll to troll in yeah. Habitat. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned the experience a couple of times. And um, the thing is, knowledge, as I figure out, each year I'm getting older and into this retro hobby, knowledge is getting lost because the young generation didn't experience it before, haven't heard of it before. And all the info source you have is Google and Wikipedia. How accurate can that be, you know? Um, and and I think it's important to make sure that things are preserved. And um, I don't know how, how much you know about the um, situation here in Europe, but since 2015, 
video games are are seen as a part of preserved uh, of preservable culture, just like movies. Uh -huh. So actually, the European Union is putting money into preserving uh, video games as oh, a as a form of art and stuff. Yeah, since since three since three three years. Yeah. So um, I don't know, but I I think in the U.S. it's not like the government is involved. Yeah, I, I I really wish that there there were like more folks out there, you know, given like the the same level of support that we have uh, to to restore games like this, because you know realistically, you know the the, the Commodore is such an interesting example, in as much as there will always be a substantial community around the 64 because of how fun it is to program and you know just all the cool things you can kind of you know get that thing to do and you know the realistically i, I don't think the commodore 64 is ever going to die like you know when when the starship enterprise comes out and like you know captain picard gets into a battle with the borg like there's going to be at least one or two commodore 64s like on the holodeck or something that's <laughs> going to be you know play, playing down like okay and 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 so you know i i think what what's been interesting to me is just discovering how many people my age are still very much into retro computing um, and who, you know, just, just kind of acquired a taste for it while young and, you know, have been spreading the, the, the love of it around, you know, to other folks. Uh, in particular, at the VCF this year, there was a, a really a really awesome uh, kid who, who came up and was like, they, he came up to the, the Commodore and was like, is that a user port modem? And I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I was getting flashbacks to my own misspent youth. It was, <laughs> it was just a thing mm -hmm. to behold. But, you know, particularly things like YouTube and, and uh, the 8-Bit Guy, uh, which we were recently featured on, actually, um, are helping to bring a lot of younger kids into the fray. Because, you know, realistically, like, computing these days is, is just so, so advanced that, you know, to the beginner, it's, it's still, like, you know, it can seem somewhat insurmountable. And Commodore, you just have to switch that, that thing on and you're, you're programming, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. that, is, that was hugely inspirational to me. I don't think I would have ever gotten into a career in technology if it wasn't for, for just, you know, how... how low that barrier of entry is and so my hope is retro computing to, for younger generations can provide that that same kind of context and through emulation and through things like you know the ultimate 64 project and everything we can help help to bring that technology to to people who you know can use it to develop a genuine love for 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 building cool things right the, from the 64, Schweizer, yeah the 64 has has a certain uh, I, i'm not sure who who said it uh it's a statement i think it was one of our one of our guests maybe but but retro computer or, or, or not just retro computer but computing used to be it used to be that that was your hobby or your interest was computers and nowadays computers are really just they're appliances you don't think about what's happening to it right you know you you open up your laptop you go on youtube and watch some videos or something but there's not but the computer as a hobby doesn't exist like it used to and that's really a barrier for a lot of people because on the 64 if you wanted to do something you had to figure out how to do it yourself if there was Absolutely. a if there was a, a a piece of software that came out with a bug you weren't going to be getting a live update you had to fix it yourself if you wanted to fix it and that's something that doesn't doesn't happen any anymore because there's this yeah there's this layer like like I don't know what any of the chips in my laptop are I couldn't tell you what the, what that processor is or what this thing over here with the graphics does. I have no idea. Where I can count, I can list off every single chip in that 64 and what they do and how they do it. 
And I, re- I remember who that was. It was Lopsang Alvitas. Okay, there you go. That that mentioned it. And it was in our third podcast, the Peruvian scene, where yes. we talked about how the Peruvian C64 programmers, seniors that only got the C64 in the black market, had to reverse engineer how modems work to make VPSs work. Yeah. I mean... We, we, I, I do think that we have lost something from those days. I mean, you know, computing is so much more widespread, but at the same time, I think people are are much more willing to kind of seed things to computers, you know, particularly like, you know, the, their information. And, you know, the, in, in, in a lot of ways, I, I, you know, I remember like Ted Nelson in, in Computers Live back in, back in the 70s, he used to write that, you know, computers were tools to, to oppress people. <laughs> and I, was, I, I always thought that that was just like, some serious like 1960s kind of granola talk but you know the the, the more that you know i i i've certainly have, have come to un- understand like large-scale distributed systems you know the more i kind of realize that you know there are huge ways that those can you know change and otherwise in, in a negative or, or or even a malicious sense can can create you know situations between human beings that otherwise wouldn't have existed without them and so i think it you know now now more than ever it's it's really important to promote not only computer literacy but also, you know, the, just sort of like a, a love for doing things that that aren't like actively trying to to harm mankind. I mean, I, I'm not not including Twitter in this because you know Twitter has <laughs> is, I think an extremely ethical uh, company with a lot of extremely ethical people working for them, and you know Jack as well. You know, is a very ethical person, but you know there 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 just are a lot of folks out there who are using you know this. This uh, this differential between people who don't know anything about computers and people who know a lot to exploit those who don't, and that's that's such a bummer. <laughs> right, right, yeah. But but there are also people in their twenties that are um, getting backwards interested into things that were happening before they were even born. I mean, I know somebody who's twenty and he's a self-proclaimed CRT repairing expert. That's fantastic. <laughs> So, <laughs> I mean, you know, there really is an appeal in that, you know, like, you know, ret- retro computing provides, you know, an opportunity to, to really get, get your hands on, on the metal in a way that a modern computer wouldn't. And, you know, I know like there's a group out here in New York called NYC Resistor, um, who are just a lot of, you know, young, you know, technologically oriented people who just love doing all sorts of crazy stuff, like recovering stuff off of like deck tape tapes and, you know, <laughs> recovering punched, uh, you know, like uh, p- punched rolls of, of, of tape and stuff. Just really a, a lot of fascinating people who understand the, the potential in, 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 you know, preserving uh, our, our technological history. Tape. Yeah. <laughs> we, do you, you, we, don't, we don't have to preserve that. <laughs> Was that a cassette it's a cleaning, tape? It's yeah. a cleaning tape. It's, it's uh, use, useful. It's fantastic. <laughs> Preserve, preserve everything else. The tapes can go away. No, that's bullshit. <laughs> I like tapes. I mean, um, I mean, of course, I would still prefer a diskette version. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, some some have great loaders, music, little games playing in between while mm-hmm. you're waiting for the game to load. It's it's just because you didn't experience it in America doesn't mean it's awful. Oh, I know. I experienced it. It was an experience that I had, and it's an experience <laughs> that 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 you can keep. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily you are. Um, luckily, well, not everybody's thinking like that. And, and my experience would have been faster being NTSC. So, 
Yeah, good. No, That's good. Ten hertz. Yeah. Ten hertz matters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, um, now you said that there's a um, you're running uh, QLink Reloaded in front of that. Is that something that you can log into with the QLink disk, or is that just something that's there to to bolster the uh, the habitat? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, if you're on an original 64 or 128, that's uh, actually the only way that you... Well, actually, I, I take that back. That's one of the ways that you can get in. Uh, we also established a special habitat-only protocol mm-hmm. um, that can also be accessed via a physical machine. Um, you know, a, a fellow a, a fella who uh, is a VP now at, at Warner Brothers uh, came in and gave us a, a hand on developing a specific client and fast loader um, that makes it really easy for people to, to get into the world mm-hmm. very quickly. And uh, they were able to adapt that to work with, like, the Y modem and some of the other, um, you know, modem peripherals that are available for the 64. And I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm using because I, it boots directly into Habitat, and then you have to go to the terminal and connect to the server and then go into Habitat from there. Um, yeah. What's the server for the, the Q-Link Reloaded thing? Because I don't – I haven't seen that anywhere. So it's the exact same server, app.neohabitat.org. It just runs on port 5190, which is the traditional um, okay. America Online Q-Link port. Okay. Um, and yeah, like uh, more or less, uh, I know things like the Y-Modem have specific uh, settings for that. And if, if you can find like a standard Q-Link disk, there's still a couple around the internet. I think we even have one of our own in one of our repos. Um, it's it's pretty trivial to get online. Um, I've got I've got seventy five of them over there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, Nick Vivid, one of our editors and NTSC supporters, actually is doing one of the strike term modem, right? Yeah, the strike yeah. modem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Strike term is the software, and strike oh. modem is the modem. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. Strike uh, link is the modem. Strike link. Strike link is the modem. Strike term is the software. Yes. Okay. Although because in my experience, I've tr- I I didn't try it with that. I I'm using the one, the Australian one, to log uh, into. Oh, the like the Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 definitely works with uh with, with Neohab. Yeah, and the, the Strike Link should work with it because it's basically they're all essentially the same thing. Yeah, but I haven't. I mean the the the, the, the challenge is just uh. You know, with with certain kinds of modems, like you know, there, there's certain, something that Keylink does that's special. I kind of forget what it is, but you know, uh, things like uh, the strike strike modem and and the, the Melbourne and, and the Y modem all have sp- uh, special settings that mm-hmm. are are designed to work with that. Yeah, yeah, I've gotten all three of them to work with Keylink Reloaded, the the server running by run by Jazzmaz. Um, but I have and but I've only tried the one on on Habitat because I've got I keep the the Melbourne. One set to twelve hundred baud by default, and that's just I just use that for QLink and whatever else needs twelve hundred. Then the other ones yeah. are like set to ninety six, so that I can actually you know do something on the boards with them. It, it's kind of funny. I think I think more or less Habitat really works best at twelve hundred baud, which you know that 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 that's something you don't hear too often in the year right, twenty eighteen. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's amazing how fast it does work. You know, it's it's. And when I say it's it's like Second Life but faster, it really is faster. You know, it's you walk from one side of the screen to the next, and the next room pops up, and the screen blacks. There's a little bit of music for you know a second or two, and then the next next thing is up. You're not waiting for loading resources. You're not, you know, there's all this stuff that's just almost instantaneous. It feels versus it, a lot of other online or MMOs where you go into something and you're waiting for you know, scenery to, to load or, 
or something, you know. I mean, it, it really is astounding just like how much of an achievement that that client was. Um, there's some features in there that really were, were super forward thinking. In particular, there's a, a, a garbage collector. Mm-hmm. It's a stop the world garbage collector, but, you know, that's built right in. And, you know, I think it might be one of the very first things on, on the C64 that ever really had something like that built in. And um, additionally, like, you know, if you have uh, assets cached, so, you know, on the, 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 the assets disk, uh, there are a bunch of, um, you know, assets all drawn by the great Gary Winnick uh, of Maniac Mansion and other Lucasfilm fame. And uh, uh, more or less, uh, those will get loaded into memory, um, which will be happening during, like, the, you know, like the, 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 the region transition phase. Uh, but if those are in memory already, um, you walk into a region that has a lot of those already in memory, it's really a, a, a very rapid procedure. It doesn't take more than about five or ten seconds. Um, particularly, like if you're walking through like the like the woods or something, it's uh, it's it's super rapid out there, which is helpful mm-hmm. because uh, it helps you like play hide and seek and you know, right, yeah. <laughs> like do some do some sniping. <laughs> right, and there's also teleporters in games, so you can quickly move from place to place if you can figure out where that is you're going. Yes, indeed. So now this is also in cooperation with the Maid Museum. So what is That's their correct. what is their uh, uh, impact or or their um, um, I can't influence? Yes, or yeah, I suppose that's a, that's a word that I could use. Or a participation? Yeah. What's what? How, how is their? How do they participate in this? So uh, without the Meta, this project would have never gotten started. Um, this all kind of started as as uh, one of the ideas that Alex Handy, uh, who runs the Maid, had. He's like, man, it'd be really cool if we could bring back Habitat. And you know, so um, you know, he's been doing uh, re- reporting in uh, enterprise computing and video games for for you know quite a few years now, mm-hmm. and reached out to you know to, to Randy and Chip, and you know reached out to them, and you know Chip was like, hey, like, I've got a copy of the source code, <laughs> <laughs> that 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 just like kicked things really into high gear, and on top of that, they also got us the legal precedent, uh, they also got us uh, a lot of our early press, uh, they have been extremely supportive, they hosted. Um, you know, they've hosted like our chat services and, you know, they uh, they have a, an exhibit inside the, the museum now that runs Habitat. Um, in fact, it features something we call our second screen experience, uh, uh, which, which uh, more or less allows you to open up a, a tab in your web browser that'll follow your avatar around and give you some interesting help text and other bits of useful information as you're yeah, walking through. Yeah, I actually wanted to mention that because that is one of the really cool things because it's real easy to get lost in Habitat Oh yeah, um, and <laughs> and with this, the split screen thing, you can actually on your your browser, your your laptop or whatever next to your computer, it'll show you. You know, to the left is this, to the right is this, down is this, and it'll kind of give you background on where you are and some gen- general information. Tell you who else is logged into the thing. Well, th- th- thanks so much. I'm really glad to hear that that you're getting some value out of that. That was a yeah. <laughs> that was a really fun fun weekend project. Uh, the, the, it basically like the, the way it works is that it's like a kind of a smart proxy that sits between uh, the the Elko server and uh, the the server that that transmutes to the uh, you know to the eight bit you know uh, mm-hmm. new habitat or the original habitat protocol. And you know th- there are a lot of really cool features. Uh, the whole thing works over um, uh, over uh, uh, web sockets, and so. Um, you know, any events that happen in world um, that, you know, your client itself receives can, in, in theory, 
also be rendered in the browser. So there's really a lot of opportunity for developing that into even like a full-featured, you know, Commodore 64-less, um, you know, a Habitat client in and of its own right. So um, more or less, if anybody out there feels like getting into just a wild and crazy JavaScript hack, that is, I think, one of the more fun projects you can get yourself into. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's cool to see it work, too, because... You know, when you when you're on the 64 and you change the the area that you're in, the the laptop, you know, my Mac next to it updates automatically, like like that to reflect what you're what's happening in the next room that you're in now. Exactly, like that 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 was really one of the things we wanted to to, to make happen because I know like my, myself is like you know Stu and, and and Nate and I were all working on on the uh, the geography of the world. You know, I I just found myself getting lost like crazy. I was like, man, like I'm one of like the you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> one one of the lead devs of this thing, and I'm get getting myself lost. This is, I can't even imagine what the other abs are going through. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, building this docent was really cool, and I I really hope that we can continue to expand. It'd be really great to have like a a full world map you could kind of check out, Second Life style. Um, mm-hmm. We have all the capacity to do that. It's just kind of a matter of of, of free time for hacking. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I still like to think that somewhere in in on some mm-hmm. server in AOL's basement, there's a versions of me lost in the sewers in club Carib. <laughs> well what's cool is that uh, that was actually one of the, the the features we were able to bring back in and my goodness gracious i remember i went down there without a flashlight and I, i'd use my oracle powers to uh-huh. get out it was it was dangerous yeah yeah it's 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 impossible <laughs> <laughs> and fujitsu also has something to do with this because their their name is a splash screen yes indeed uh they, they were extremely kind in, in giving us like a pretty much like a, like a royalty-free like you know uh, license to kind of go and, and develop this uh, without any you know legal issues and you know I, I think really it, it's it's kind of serving as, as the beacon as to like what a motivated group of people who really want to see something come back can, can do when working together and it's my hope that you know that can really establish a precedent for other projects that are in the same state as habitat yeah definitely this is yeah we definitely should should do a, um, a round table and panel and talk to people on, on the live show and have the questions come in and yes. and by then hopefully AJ taught me how how this neo habitat well, thing works. You know, we when, before. When, when <laughs> we do our when we do the walkthrough video that will accompany this, uh, you're going to have to be on there because if it's just me walking around in in. You know, in world, that's going to be real boring for 15, 20 minutes or however long it is. So <laughs> I'm the entertaining part. Yeah, then. exactly. Okay. Yeah, I, I really think that when Habitat really comes alive, when there are a lot of different ads walking around and, and bumping into one another, um, just because, you know, it's such like an eclectic group of people who uh, who do this. Um, so, yeah, that's a that, that that's more or less a, the, the, the gist of it. I'm I'm really excited that. You know, y- y'all, you know, have have are, are going to go check it out and see what's what's in there. And it still has so the the uh, however many avatars per screen limit. Where you, if you go over a certain amount, you have to be invisible. Right. So um, if if it's over six avatars, um, um, you have to become a ghost. Um, and ghosts can receive all the the stuff that's happening. It's kind of like a primitive form of multicast. Uh, but they they cannot actually interact until they corporate, um, and that happens by pressing the F1 key. Interesting. Yeah. So there's there's a little eye in the corner of the screen, and that tells you that someone's that either you're invisible or so or you're ghosting or someone else is. 
Because exactly. that's, that's one of the things that people used to do, I, from what I've read in the early Habitat, is that they would, they'd be, they'd, they would ghost themselves so they're invisible. And they'd wait around until you put something down, and then they'd become corporeal, grab it, and disappear again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that was, um, you know, when you drop something on the ground in Habitat, um, it effectively becomes fair game for, for anyone. And so um, that that's one of the reasons why turfs were so popular because you um, you know people couldn't pick stuff up off of, off of the floor of your turf. But um, you know in the early days, um, both uh, you know people could yank stuff out of the the hands of avatars, and they also could shoot weapons wherever they wanted. And this just created like some serious like <laughs> neuromancery kind of pandemonium. It was it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of stories about the early the early days of habitat and how things just sort of got out of control quick because people would figure oh, yeah. out here's some here's something that I could do to mess with people or here's something that I could do to you know to max out you know the amount of money that I had or something and they would just just abuse it until someone had to come in and be like yeah no we, we're going to change things now and, and some kind of cheating <laughs> yeah yeah well not cheating because it was it was fair game you were allowed to do it but then you realize <laughs> that this is a really terrible idea let's fix this and, you know, I think in a lot of ways, you know, Habitat was one of the very first Petri dishes for exploring, like, how people in a social aspect on a on a computerized network, you know, could, you know, could, could, could interact both in positive and also negative ways. And, um, you know, the, the, the white paper, the Lessons of Lucasfilm's Habitat, is, is just a really fascinating read because, you know, like, just, just like you were mentioning, like, there were all these things that happened in world like for instance there's this time when when randy built, built this this quest called the denalsi island quest and um it was this extremely elaborate thing it took months to develop all the all the resources and they expected it to last at least a couple of months of, of in world time it got solved in something like a matter of like a day <laughs> and they were like oh no what what happened but you know it's it's just fascinating just kind of these compounding effects you see when when people get into these kinds of environments and habitat was very much the OG and kind of showing folks like, you know, I think a lot of what we see now on, on, you know, social media networks, you know, and uh, admittedly a, a slightly more innocent time, if you will. <laughs> well, I'm, I, as a C, I'm totally fascinated by all these stories yeah, you and know, all the a, things that I miss. Yeah. As a European, he did USA. not get any of this stuff. And it's, and it's so, it's so unusual, at least from, from my perspective here, because usually He's talking about stuff that is European because with the 64, a lot of the the big stuff that happened was in Europe. And, and you know, us poor schmuck Americans, we got nothing, you know, or we just got, you know, the the, the we got the hand-me-downs, you know, the, the, the games that weren't quite fixed but ran good enough, you know, stuff like that. And and this is like one of those things where where I know what this is. I I played with this stuff. He has no idea what I'm talking about. You know, he's this is not this is not something that Europe ever got to experience, which is kind nope. of kind of a shame because, you know, you think you know maybe Europe because Europe kept the '64 going long after the U.S. kind of walked away from it. Two, Very much so. Uh, two years, two years more. Right, so, and they were even selling. You know, I think the last year that the '64 was made, yeah, they were still they still sold almost a million of them. Because Europe not, wasn't not, not, not a million, no, eight, not a million, eight hundred thousand, yeah. almost a million. So, I said. so UK and Germany um, produced the sixty-four two years longer. Right. So um, Commodore closed, and 
I think it was April '94, yes. and um, UK and Germany had still some financial backup, and they still produced it for two two more years. Right. And um, and Europeans were were happy with that because I guess their their idea of of what you do with the computer was sort of different from the U.S. We were kind of more got to get the newest, you know, shiniest thing. Whereas Europe, it's more if it works, it works. This is a, you know, a tested machine that's been around forever and has a huge software library. So keep it going. Um, I, I can tell you, I can tell you exactly how it was. Ascom took over Commodore. Um, Ascom took over Commodore and went bankrupt itself in '96. But before they were bankrupt um, in '96, they they sold. Um, Commodore 64 as as video game machines. Yeah, right. For 100 yeah. German marks. Mm -hmm. So oh, wow. in 95 and 96, you could go to um, an electronic store and just get one as a gaming machine. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is, those were not newly produced C64 parts, but old parts. Right. right so right. that means that means the expansion port, for example, was too wide, because the PCB wasn't exact fit. Right. So, and, it, it, and the first one my grandfather got actually didn't run any software. It would just say run and nothing ever happened. So after the third try, he said, oh, crap, I will not return it a third time. He just, he just removed the PCB par portion that was too much to make the expansion port work again. So those late C64s had a pretty bad bad quality okay, because they just put together what they had left over and most of that stuff was broken unfortunately my, my point however was that um <laughs> in the u.s you know q-link went under in 92 i think no, i think it was no, 93 93 93 okay uh q-link went under in 93 um they were already when i was using it which was i want to say late 91 maybe early 92 um, they were already starting to reallocate resources to AOL. You know, like the, I think I was one of the very last uploads to AOL or to, to QLink. Uh, oh, before wow. they turned off, they like, they, they, what well, you could still download stuff, but nothing new was being uploaded. And, you know, a lot of the message boards and the special interest groups and stuff, they were getting shut down. Um, so the system was still around, but they were starting to shutter it as early as 91. And then they killed it all in 93. And the point I was going to make was if, if Europe had been, had had access to this stuff, you know, who knows how much longer it could have gone because there was such a higher amount of 64 users in Europe and around the rest of the world than there was in the U.S. And it wasn't like Q-Link was ever was ever barren you know every time i would go on there there were always people on the thing mm. well europe has a different history for example in 98 when germany was united again people from the east suddenly had Nine, 98 no that was 89 uh, sorry 89 yeah you so call people yourself german yeah, right. No, I was just switching the numbers because in German we say yeah, the other way around, actually. Yeah. So, anyway, um, 89 was Germany was united. And also, a little bit later, Poland was independent from the Soviet Union. 
And so though the Commodore 64 had a revival in Europe mm -hmm. because of that. Right. But that maybe had a play you know, in it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I definitely think, you know, the, the, the Quantum Company in America Online, you know, they, they certainly did not make many entrees in, into Europe for quite quite some time. And that, that was kind of a bummer. I mean, you know, maybe in like the 80s, like they were concerned about like, you know, the logistics of opening up a data center. But, you know, the, the Commodore 64 was was for at least some time, like truly the de facto computer of Europe, you know, more or less. I mean, you know, the ZX Spectrum kind of had some inroads and, you know, the BBC Micro and a couple of other machines. But, you know, the C64 was dominant. They they, they could have really reaped some serious profits out there. Mm -hmm. And it was nothing nothing like Q-Link for, uh, for the Spectrum or for anything else. And that was really, that's, aside from even Habitat being one of the first MMOs, uh, MMORPGs Q-Link was one of the first online systems that was uh, like a you know that walled garden AOL model that, <laughs> Absolutely. Apple, that Apple is trying to do so badly now <laughs> yeah and what, what was interesting was that um, uh, a, a big investment from Apple um, with uh, you know them trying to create something called Apple Link uh, was one of the major um, impetuses for um, you know Quantum Link to become America Online because more or less they contracted Quantum to build the service and then they're like, eh, we don't really want it, but you can keep all the the IP and so it's effectively just kind of like a like 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 a Kickstarter esque kind of several million dollar investment into <laughs> into Quantum right. with, with no consequences. You know, very late late 80s Apple. You know, very classic yeah. late 80s Apple. And if I remember right, they wanted to charge people some exorbitant amount of money to even use the thing. Yeah, which, you know, also so, so on brand for them. You know, yeah. I think, you know, one of like the things that made the Commodore such a great machine was that, you know, ordinary folks, you know, could get access to some truly extraordinary compute capacity for for the time. And, you know, a lot of folks like, you know, myself, I mean, I was a middle class kid growing up, you know, I would have never had access to, to an Apple computer. But like a Commodore was something like my folks could buy and, you know, r really use to like expose like the family to to something that otherwise would have been really, you know, not financially feasible. So, I don't know. <laughs> Apple in the 80s under the, the Gasset and Scully leadership was, was a very unique beast indeed. Impress the kids with the colorful world of 16 colors. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, they, I was they, 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 were, they were good 16 colors. They, 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 were, they made good choices. Absolutely. Indeed, they did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we nowadays know, you can with iFly, you can make them sixty-four colors. Well, eh? yeah. Well, you can. <laughs> you could do that without iFly. You can just you can do that in basic just by swapping two colors back and forth. But you know, right? It's not really um, making new colors. It's just. Well, the impression counts, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it also depended on what monitor you used, because some would totally show that off, and some would. Mm, with, with iFly, it works on all monitors. It just flickers a bit. Well, yeah, flicker. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. With some monitors, you don't see the flicker as, as bad as you do others. That's true, yeah. Right, so what we need is new habitat um, reloaded for a modern no, graphic. No, 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 we no, don't need no, that, okay? No. 
I mean, I mean, it's, well, they, they kind of, that was, you mentioned early on in the podcast, um, what was it? Um, Worlds Away. Yes, Worlds Away, which pretty much was Habitat ported to newer systems. Very much so, and uh, the original team of, of Randy and, and Chip was, was directly involved in the creation of Worlds Away. Um, so, you know, there was, um, you know, a direct lineage between Habitat and, and that. And, you know, what, what I think was interesting about Worlds Away was that it also had a very substantial legacy. Um, you know, it was, it was operating well into the 2000s. Um, you know, there was, there was an effort um, to uh, reestablish it uh, about a year or two ago, but, um, you know, that kind of went by the wayside. There's also something called uh, the V-Zones Project um, that uh, is, is also, you know, kind of in that, that same that same vein so you know I, I, it would be interesting to see like what can happen you know kind of as a consequence of habitat coming back to, you know, to see like you know if worlds away could come back as well to kind of show people like the the full the full evolution yeah or even make a version of worlds away that'll work with habitat so you can kind of <laughs> jump over yeah i mean what, what would be really cool like <laughs> I, I think it'd be cool to like have like a mobile client for habitat that's certainly something i've been plugging away with you know a little Ooh. bit in my, my spare time because you know the the sort of like touch interface of a mobile device is is you know uh, I think fairly well suited towards the you know the, the interface of Habitat itself. That would be so, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I agree. That would be that would be really good because the the interface does take a little bit of getting used to. It's it's essentially oh, yeah. it's it's scum, but instead of clicking and then selecting what you're doing, you're clicking and then you know you move the move your joystick in the direction and, and like up is is go and down is do and left is something and every <laughs> okay. every time i do it i go through all of them before i find what i'm looking for i so. still do that <laughs> <laughs> you, you, know, you know what's notable is that uh, that actually is a the very first documented example of, of, a, of a pie menu in a video game that was the, the very first uh uh, I, I, admittedly, I still I still like go through all four directions. I'm like, I want to put something, and I, I inevitably like you know get and think yeah. ding ding ding, and I'm like, oh, dang it, mm-hmm. <laughs> I sh- I should know better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, some things you cannot put off. Okay. Yeah. So so Steve, where can people find out about this? Where is what's the website or where they can go and what they can download? Yes, indeed. Uh, so if uh, folks want to check out Neo Habitat. They can go visit our website, neohabitat.org, and uh, there is a full set of uh, instructions on how to download the client and how to get involved. Um, it usually takes under five minutes for anybody on uh, Windows, Mac, or Linux. So, you know, it's a very straightforward thing um, uh, as long as you download the client. And, uh, yeah, if you have any questions, uh, you can always join our Slack at slack.neohabitat.org. It'll send you a little little invite. And we've got a neat little community out there, a lot of, you know, sort of like VPs and C-levels from companies, a lot of interesting people from Lucasfilm, just a really eclectic and, and, and very awesome community of people who've all come to check, check out Habitat. And there's also a, a download I'm link so for the actual, the D64 file for actual 64 that you can hook up. And yes, instructions indeed. for different Wi-Fi modems, how to, well, actually, I think there's instructions for one Wi-Fi modem right now, but... Um, I was actually thinking about yeah. writing instructions for the other two because I've got them all. <laughs> Absolutely, that that'd be great, and that, that's really one thing to note. You know, um, New Habitat's an open source project, so um, anybody who wants to come and contribute, uh, we are extremely, extremely welcoming of that. Uh, so many interesting things to get into. Um, so many cool little projects. We even have like a little bot framework uh, written entirely in JavaScript using promises. So, if you if you happen to be like 
like a web developer or something like there's a lot of opportunities there if you're into like low level commodore development there's something for you there too so it's really just like you know it, it's really a free for all of, of of open source contribution and anybody's welcome to come check it out and, and join and there's two bots in games currently there's uh, the eliza bot and there's one in the welcome center i think yeah so so the welcome bot is designed to help ease people into habitat whereas uh, eliza is just kind of meant to provide a, a neat little like bot foil using the Eliza algorithm in a JavaScript library. And so we have a lot of other interesting bots uh, hanging around in that repo, and it's very trivial to spin one up. You know, it shouldn't take more than half an hour to really get one in World. Cool. And so our, our hope is like, you know, for those who like to do um, web development or have a, a background in, in JavaScript, um, this can provide a, a very easy mechanism for, for hacking on Habitat. So be- I have to say I learned a lot today, and I definitely have to check it out. Despite I'm European, yes, and I, I actually, I actually, I actually have a modified Commodore 64 that I turned into NTSC because there is a a, a clock time um, time clock generator I see that overrides the quartz algorithm. The quartz. Um, so yeah, wow. This was very interesting. Oh, my God. <laughs> thanks a lot. Yeah, th- thanks um, so much for your time. It's been a, a lot of fun. Yeah, we will put links in the podcast description to everything that we've talked about and everything that they can go to uh, in the description below so that everyone can right. check that out. Well, thanks awesome. For, right. Well, you all thanks have a fantastic si- day. Uh, thank you. Uh, we will. Yeah, have, you thanks too. for sitting with us. <laughs> oh, no thank okay. you for your time. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye.